Thank you. Thank you. Um, next we have uh, David. Um, we're going to take questions at the end, just in the interest of time. Thanks, guys, for a great presentation. I think we'll have lots of questions at the end. Um, David is going to present to you on, on the seductions of the bl uh, blockchain. That's right. Okay, and we've got a laser. Right, so if you believe those who believe in the blockchain, you believe that blockchain technology could potentially be more significant and have more of an impact on a life in the coming decades than the web and HTTP and HTML. Honestly, I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but there's very clearly a, a lot of interest and a lot of hype. And uh, Louis, thank you very much for mentioning Bitcoin. Uh, because there's Bitcoin in my presentation, and Bitcoin might be the thing you're more familiar with, but really what excites me is blockchain. Um, I have the uh, honor of having said way back in 2012 that I thought Bitcoin would be irrelevant by the end of the year. Um, so I wasn't quite right, and I, I'm still not convinced that Bitcoin is as awesome and amazing as everyone thinks it is, uh, but I think blockchain itself as a far wider uh, set of technology has certainly more uses. Um, I am giving a, a presentation to try to seduce you to blockchain, and this is the sexiest photo that I was prepared to put up about blockchain. Um, and if you look closely, there's a little bit of chest hair creeping out the top there, so enjoy that. <laughs> um, I also have something to, to confess. I, I, I tested some of my material with some colleagues and my wife, and I didn't get a, a very good response at those stages. So. Unfortunately, I'm probably going to talk a little bit less about the super awesome, interesting, advanced stuff that really is quite seductive, because my way of seducing actuaries is to talk about the maths and the calculations and hash functions and algorithms. So I am going to make sure that those of you who don't know that much about blockchains leave here understanding just a little bit of how it actually works. And then I think you are all more than smart enough to figure out the amazing use cases that we'll have uh, going forward. So, uh, apologies for some of the pictures. I was very careful to make sure I got pictures that had uh, uh, rights that I was allowed to reproduce. So this is possibly a typical explanation of blockchain on the web. And as you're reading that, I'm hoping it means nothing to you, because that definition doesn't really mean much to me at all. A public ledger of transactions that have been executed, completed blocks growing, recorded. So for me, the challenge is getting through the buzzwords in the language and trying to understand what it actually does, how it actually works, and that's how I'm going to take you through. And this is the only cat uh, slide in the presentation. So formally, um, blockchains are often termed a distributed uh, ledger technology. So blockchain is kind of what we, we currently refer to it as. And it did arise out of Bitcoin. So although I, I don't necessarily believe that Bitcoins are the answer to all of our problems, um, the technology behind Bitcoin is, in fact, what we use as blockchain. Now, some of you may have put up a hand. Who has ever owned or paid or received a Bitcoin? Okay, so that's about like 0.3%. Fantastic. Um, how many of you, and obviously this was for legal purposes because there are many legal cases, how many of you have used BitTorrent? Okay, those of you whose hands aren't up, maybe you're old or you're lying, I don't know. Um, but the idea behind BitTorrent is that files can be distributed over many, many computers all around the world. You can download a file from 10 or 100 people. You have no idea who they are. You don't care who they are. You don't trust them. But you trust somehow that those files are going to get down onto your laptop. There is a distribution of all these, these files. 
It, it is uh, publicly available. There's no single point of failure, and the bits in BitTorrent and the bits in Bitcoin and the blockchain in blockchain are all the same sort of um, ideas there. Now, Bitcoins, uh, and therefore blockchain, was created by a guy called Satoshi Nakamoto, except, of course, it wasn't because that's not a real person. It's a pseudonym, and we still don't know who he is. He may be a she. One or two people have come out of the woodwork claiming that they were him, that they were just about to give irrefutable evidence and inevitably backtrack at the last moment. Um, current Bitcoin price, because Bitcoin is still probably the biggest user of blockchain, is about $700. And there are 16 billion Bitcoins, a bigger part, 16 million Bitcoins, about $1.2 billion worth of value, and about $200 million of transactions in Bitcoins every day. So there's a lot of stuff happening here. Um, who knows exactly where it will get to? But as I mentioned, some of the people who really believe in this stuff, for them, this feels like 1989 and the internet. And there's this amazing potential, but very few people, I think, in 1989 really could envisage uh, Dropbox or Facebook or uh, Twitter. Uh, but the sense of the potential, the technology really has that massive potential. Okay, if you look for blockchain in the news, this is all literally from yesterday, and there's a couple of stories that came out very, very recently. So the Malta Stock Exchange is exploring how they can use blockchain technology for a stock exchange. Uh, the uh, Walmart is looking how we're going to use this to, to deal with uh, food and best buy dates. Um, the Internet of Things, another big trend for the next few years. People are saying, well, we've got distributed ledgers, we've got Internet of Things, how are they going to work together? And the Korea uh, Exchange is also looking to start up a market there. Um, several South African banks and the FSB and Strait have got together, and they've also created a consortium to try to work out how they can use blockchain. Now, frankly, that's a, a, an offensive and a defensive thing. I think they are looking for new opportunities to use this thing as an amazing to decrease costs. And yes, I haven't yet explained what it is. Don't worry, it's coming. But I think they also are defensive because a lot of people saying that blockchain could disintermediate, could make banks, maybe insurers, other forms of financial institutions less relevant. Why do you need a Johannesburg Stock Exchange running the Stock Exchange where you can have a distributed ledger where everybody can see, everybody can know exactly who owns which shares and exactly irrefutably which transactions have been made? But, of course, plenty of people have actually uh, pulled out of some of these projects and programs. If you read the blockchain supporting website, it looks like this is the, the second coming and it's all happening right here and now. Well, in actual fact, there's a lot of flux, a lot of people going in and out. So Goldman and Santander and Morgan Stanley and a couple of others have pulled out of the R3 blockchain group, which has been doing some exciting things. Um, and that they've also lowered their, their funding uh, plans. And I mean, I, don't, I haven't actually read the article about MoneyGram, but there's lots of people saying, well, maybe it's not quite ready just yet. So I'm not going to be as foolish as I was in 2012 writing off Bitcoin. I don't know exactly when and how and what blockchain will be useful, but we are going to talk through some of the applications. So we're a bunch of actuaries. Why do we care about blockchain? Um, there's a lot of mathematics involved, a lot of fairly hard mathematics. Frankly, probably a lot of mathematics that we would all find terribly hard and maybe even terribly boring, but it's there. A lot of blockchain does involve finance, payments, lending, uh, uh, identification, and so on. So there's a lot of finance elements. Um, and we're supposed to understand the long term. So if we are understanding the long term, we should be concerned about the long term. We should be trying to understand how this is going to impact ourselves, our careers, our companies, our employers, our industry, and our, our, our overall society. Um, one of the reasons I'm a bit skeptical of Bitcoin is that many of the real Bitcoin supporters are brilliant in the geek credentials, brilliant in the math credentials and cryptographic stuff, and they 
to my sense, don't understand the first thing about money and monetary policy and finance, economic, and how things really, really work. Um, and the second-order implications, and if this happens, then what? I don't know that they're always getting with the program. But hopefully, is actually, is that something that we're supposed to be good at? So that's why I think that actually might potentially be a particularly good opportunity for us to get involved, and not actually necessarily with the maths, probably most likely not, but with all these implications and applications down the line. Um, many of us get fairly heavily involved in programming, and my very last slide is probably my most important slide. We're talking about smart contracts, and programming is going to be a very key part of that. Um, and uh, complex contracts, and there's a lot of logic and precision involved. But the real reason I think we need to be very concerned about blockchain is this graph. We are less important than blockchain. <laughs> I have no idea what happened there. <laughs> um, I checked my Twitter stream. I didn't post anything then. Uh, I think there may have been a 2013 article about actually being, well, uh, and actually being the number one job in the world or something. So maybe that that particular spike, but difficult to ascertain. But yes, it's a little bit difficult to tell. But this is slightly decreasing. We are becoming less cool. Yes, less cool. Um, whereas blockchain is increasing significantly. So it's kind of important. And as much as I don't really want to talk about Bitcoin, Bitcoin is still a much, much bigger deal than blockchain, right? But what you'll see is on a very small scale, blockchain is starting to increase. And I'm pretty sure that if I did this presentation two years from now, blockchain would have far more research than Bitcoin because applications are much broader. This side will tell you a few things. This is me trying to do some research and work out how much actually is new about what I was going to talk about. This will teach you to uh, proofread your polls on Twitter before you send them out. Um, it'll also tell you that I don't have that many followers because I'm very proud to get 10 votes. Uh, two of them were colleagues that are pretty much forced to vote. So for, uh, for the other eight of you, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. But this was where I started to get paused around how I'm going to get through what could potentially be quite a, a technical presentation if you don't understand what a hash function is. But the good news is I'm going to tell you what a hash function is. So at 23 floor, follow me. I do all sorts of cool stuff and moan about uh, 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 Bitcoin. Okay, so hash function. A hash function is pretty cool. It's a mathematical function that takes a string of information, in this case text, and summarizes it, which might be an odd word, into another string. This is the Message Digest 5 hash algorithm, which blockchain actually uses SHA-256. But it takes that string and calculates and presents what looks like a pretty much a random string of digits. It is virtually impossible to know what that came from, except by guessing what that is, applying the hash function, and seeing what it gives you. So for example, if we change that from 2016 to 2017, the hash function is completely different. So it's not a summary in any sort of summary context. This is saying there's a unique relationship, big part, not unique, there's a one-to-many relationship. Because this is shorter than a percentile me message, there could be many messages that give you that same hash but there's basically no way to predict in advance what it will be. So similarly, if you take the entire Romeo and Juliet play, about 25,000 words, you get a message digest that's exactly the same length. But you change one letter in that script, and you get, again, a completely different hash function. And this is key, which we'll go through in a moment. Now, there's a new word I'm going to teach you, nonce. Nonce originally was a, a single-use created word a nonsense word created for a single purpose, often in cryptography. And the idea here would be that 
if we were to try to work out what string we needed to use, or how would we change the dates, that would be our nonce in this case. Such that the hash function would have one zero in the start. We we'd need to increase from 2016 to 2026. And by luck, without knowing about it, we have to test every single time, we'd work out that the hash function started with one zero. I asked my wife to try to do this for me, but she didn't seem as very exciting. So I had to go through all the years from 2026 upwards to 2202 to get a hash function which started with two zeros. So to get a hash function which starts with 18 or 20 or 22 zeros is not so much hard as boring. Okay, really, really, really time-consuming. Um, and this is absolutely fundamental to blockchain technology, so we'll get on that in a moment. So blockchains are fairly often portrayed as vertical stacks of blocks. And what we have is, this is a slightly different representation. We have a block of information. These are all the transactions. So this is for a Bitcoin uh, 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 block, but you could have who paid what to whom, who bought what share from whom, who owns what copyrights to what music, whatever information, whatever transactions and the information you wanted, you store in a block of information. You then choose your nonce. You run a hash function on the, the header, and the header also includes the hash of the prior block, which chains them together. And in fact, not shown here, there is also another hash based on this function. But basically what you end up is saying, you have to search for which nonce on this information is going to give you this hash function with a whole long set of zeros. And you test, and you test, and you test, and you test, and when you hear about people Bitcoin mining, they are effectively searching for what nonce they need to add into the structure of information to get this result with a whole lot of zeros. And in fact, every 48 hours, the whole system pauses and says, how long has it been on average defined? A new nonce and a new block. If it's been different from 10 minutes, they increase or decrease the number of zeros you need to have for the system to say, yes, you have found and confirmed a block. So therefore, we will know every 10 minutes a new block will be created, will be confirmed, and then they are chained together because the next block includes the prior block, a hash of the prior block in it. So we've had a whole set of transactions. I've just paid you a Bitcoin. Now, the miners around the world are mining, trying to find the right hash, locks down that single block, says, right, this block is confirmed, that transaction is confirmed, and it gets laid on top of the, the, the stack of blocks. Now, more transactions happen, and another block gets stacked on top of that, and another block gets st stuck on top of that. If you want to go back and change any lower-down block, you're going to change the hash in that block, which will change the following block, which will change the hash in the following block. So you need to go through and recalculate all those individual blocks. The idea being that one block could be, uh, the, the most recent block could potentially be changed. But for you to go back and change 10 or 20 stacks of blocks, you're going to need so much more processing power than the rest of the market, because everybody else is going to be processing on the stack, adding new blocks on at the same time. So the common wisdom is that if you control more than 50% of the people trying to find these nonce values in the market, you can then create new blocks faster than everybody else can together. In theory, with enough time, you could then go back, change the transactions, mess with the record, and start recalculating blocks, recalculating blocks, adding on until you had established the, the longest piece. Maybe that's important. The, 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 the algorithm and the mechanisms take the longest block, the tallest, the biggest height of blocks, 
to be the, uh, the current version to work on. So if you need to go back and undo some things and move it forward, you need to catch up as everybody else is working on the still then longest block. So if you've got 51% of the computing power, you're going to be catching up very, very slowly, and you're going to hope that you have 51% of the, the, the calculating power for an extended period of time. Okay, so this hopefully might also make it a bit more real. This is a, a, a Bitcoin Explorer which actually looks at live transactions. And what you can see is all these transactions being put through, being put through what the height of the block was. So this is 440,112 uh, blocks high, and each new block being put on it, being put on, being put on it. This should average out to be 10 minutes. And you can see all the transactions with the number of Bitcoins going through. You can actually see everything that's going on. So it is, to some people, distressingly open. It may be anonymous in the sense that it's not my name there, but every transaction is visible for everybody to see. If you actually go into a single block, this is what you'd find. There's a number of transactions, it's over 2,000. This is the height, so this is the number of blocks since the, the chain was ever created. The block reward, important point, well remember, David. Why would people bother doing all these calculations? At the moment, if you successfully find the nonce value that gives you that hash with all the zeros, you get free money. In this case, 12.5 bitcoins, until fairly recently it was 25 bitcoins, and that reward halves every so often. And bitcoins being about $750, $750 times 12.5, it's a reasonable amount of money for doing nothing, right? But in fact, there are so many people trying to do this, it becomes quite a... a, 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 a um, arms race of technology, and in fact the hardware cost of the computers and the electricity cost of running these is pretty close to the actual reward that you're going to get. So the Bitcoin price spikes, a lot more people are encouraged to come in and mine. As the Bitcoin price decreases, a lot fewer people are interested in mining. And there's actually one of the issues I would like to highlight. Um, people like the idea that the blockchain, there are no transaction costs. When you make a Bitcoin payment, there's no transaction costs. Cost because people are effectively hoping through their mining exercise to earn the free bitcoins and in searching for those blocks they are confirming transactions. But people who are excited about bitcoin are also excited about the fact that there's an absolute finite number of bitcoins that will ever be created. So when that runs out there can be no further reward because no new bitcoins can be created. Uh, at that point, the only way to generate fee income, and the only way to encourage people to process blocks is to actually embedding a transaction fee or a transaction reward inside the block. So when you post your transaction, you can determine how much you want to offer to the, person, to the people mining that they will get that reward if they successfully complete the transaction. So with blockchain and Bitcoin, there absolutely are, and in fact, there absolutely have to be transaction costs. Then we can have the debate, are they high or low? But there are, in fact, transaction costs. Um, Ant Miner, that will be a mining pool. The Merkle roots has to do with a hash of the block that's embedded in the header. And you can ask me questions on that, but I won't get into that more for now. Um, and this is the nonce. So that's the value that they had to guess eventually to work out what gave us the hash with all those zeros. Okay. Um, well done on not starting my timer. I'll get moving quickly. So I'm probably going to go through the next two or three slides pretty quickly. 
because I do want to get to the very last slide. So it's a public ledger, typically, anybody can access it. And the whole point is that you get to trust the system, you get to trust that people have the right incentive to process your transactions, to validate your, your change of information without having to trust any of the individuals, without caring or knowing who the individuals are. So trust without any trust. And there is no central control. You don't have to worry about being a particular bank or a particular central bank or a government. It is a widely distributed uh, setup. Um, although there's potentially risk around the consolidation of processing power in individual uh, uh, mining pools. We might talk about that in a moment. There's no regulator, for better or worse. Uh, some people may claim there are no transaction costs, but there are. And for all intents and purposes, most things embedded in the blockchain would become bearer instruments. It doesn't have to be, but a lot of them would be. So if you own your Bitcoin, and I let you look at what my Bitcoin says, you can then go and spend it. The information embedded in that blockchain is a bearer instrument. If you lose it, it's gone for good. Now, what most people have heard about and spoken about to date are so-called permissionless blockchains. Anybody can access it, and a big part of that is a virtue. But you can imagine a financial institution looking to use uh, the blockchain for their own purposes, having anybody able to access for any purpose is a very foreign thought. So there are also versions called permission blockchains, where who can read, who can write, who can change it is restricted in some ways. Um, the purists, the founders, think this is uh, murdering baby swans and clubbing seals, that this is not acceptable. Um, my gut feel is just based on the power of the institutions and the fact that there are some potentially good reasons to do it. Permission blockchains may actually be uh, sooner to show uh, some of the good stuff. Okay. Originally, when you were mining for, a, for, a, for a, a, a new block, you were doing it on your PC. And then people realized that graphics cards could do calculations in parallel are really well suited to doing this. So people actually then offload the calculations onto the graphics card. And then people realized, well, hang on, I can get two graphics cards, I can get two expensive graphics cards. And that was like this whole arms race around having massive new graphics cards. And you have a desktop lap, a PC with like five high-end graphics cards in it because that was the best way to mine for bitcoins. And then somebody realized that you could invent an application-specific integrated uh, circuit, and you have dedicated hardware that does nothing else, the program to do nothing else other than very efficiently mine for bitcoins and uh, process blockchains. And that no longer works. Now what you have is massive pools of individual people all contributing their hardware because the chance of actually successfully finding a new block is so small, you and an individual you could do it for several lifetimes and potentially never discover one. But you contribute to a pool, law of large numbers, we should understand how that works. Um, so double spending is one potential issue with any digital uh, currency. I've got something, I'll tell you I've got it, I'll, I'll give it to you and pay you for it, but what's to stop me giving that to you and paying that to you and paying it to 43 other people? So the idea about that block is that it embeds the transaction in the block and it can check, have I spent that, that uh, Bitcoin or not, the information is there. But there's about 10 minutes for the block to be confirmed. It's not guaranteed that my transaction will even be confirmed in that block. And even if it has been confirmed in that block, it's still possible, although very unlikely, that another block could have been found at the same time separately, and you would end up having a fork or a split in the blockchain. And those two chains will extend. They've extended as far as six new blocks in a row before one of them got sufficiently taller than the other that everybody discarded the shorter block and moved on to the new stack. 
So there is still a chance that you can accept a payment from somebody, give them the Maserati, they drive it away, and you never get your money. Uh, so the timing of the transactions is not instantaneous, like you might feel it is with a credit card, but it's certainly a lot faster than an electronic funds transfer, which could take a couple days to reflect. So when people talk about speed, it's speed as in minutes, not speed as in uh, milliseconds. Um, okay. Um, the, the current blockchain is 65 gigabytes. So if you actually want to play around with it, you can download live versions, you don't actually download the entire blockchain, but for you to be a contributing node, you actually need to have 65 gigabytes of data downloaded onto your hardware right at the start. I've spoken about anonymity, I'm not going to speak about that unless people ask me questions. So, blockchain 2.0 is where things get really, really, really super insanely exciting and cool. And one of the biggest issues or, or possibilities around that is a so-called smart contract, of which Ethereum is, so Ethereum is similar to Bitcoin, it's a different chain. The currency is Ether rather than Bitcoins. But the idea is that you could embed a contract, uh, uh, an automatically enforceable contract into the blockchain itself. So you could agree that when certain objective events happened, money would change hands. And you embed it in the contract, and you walk away from it, and when the conditions are met, it absolutely automatically instantaneously, within a few minutes, transacts. Um, the, the, the programming within Ethereum is in fact Turing, Turing complete, so you can do pretty much anything you want, you can construct any sort of entity within that. In fact, there's the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is effectively a crowd-funded private equity organization, which is built inside um, Ethereum. My time is up. Uh, hopefully there'll be some questions, some time for questions. Um, you're very welcome to ask me your questions, and obviously don't forget my, my previous presenters in the questions as well. Thank you. Um, okay, I just want to talk about or ask your opinion around Ethereum. Um, I mean, the inevitable happened with them that they actually had the fork, and now we have two Ethereums. We've got Ethereum New and Ethereum Classic. And now there's a big debate on the internet, which one is the better one? Um, in your opinion, which one do you think is the best, the original or this new one that they've now forked? I wouldn't consider myself an expert by any stretch. I do understand the, the issues of why they had a fork and therefore I guess I would tend to lean with the new version. But a little bit of background on that point because it's quite important. Um, Ethereum is this brilliant idea uh, and all the contracts are done via programming code. And what happens when you program? You make mistakes, you get bugs, you get errors. And somebody realized that there was a way to leach Ether, the currency, out of a contract far more than the account balance. And when they realized what was happening, the organizations behind Ether, the people involved in Ether, effectively made a decision that it was better to fork and break their promises to everybody else to not let this hacker get away with all the money. So the answer to my mind is really that I don't know that Ethereum will necessarily be the right answer down the line. I think we've got a lot of mess and a lot of hassles, a lot of real problems. And one of the key issues here is that if you draft a legal contract, you work pretty hard to get the wording correct and viable and bulletproof. But if it's not, if there's an issue, you go for arbitration, you go for mediation, you go to a court, somebody looks and decides what is sensible, what's the, what's the most useful answer. Um, when times change, you can reinterpret a contract to a certain extent. But if it's hard-coded in you know, zeros and ones and bits and black and white in a digital contract, you don't have that scope. 
So I think most people believe that the sort of a, a normal legal system would be an overlay on top of like an automatic digital contract. That the contract would automate, uh, would, would uh, uh, effect automatically, but the legal system would be separate from that and you could always say, well actually no, that's, that's not what I meant, it's not fair, and you could still challenge it, but the digital side would still happen automatically. Another question? My, my question is for the first team of presenters. Um, one of the things you talked about was how it was easier for mobile operators rather than banks and enabling regulation and you know, these problems like thing, things like know your customer and, you know, not, you know, and I can understand where rural customers aren't able to provide proof of address. But where you have a situation where, I don't know, someone wants to finance terrorism or launder money and all of these other things where, you know, you know KYC wasn't, wasn't created just to annoy people. It was created for a very good reason. Um, do you want to talk about some of the ethical concerns there and, and why we should or shouldn't be looking at that? Actually, that question is probably relevant to both. Yeah. Hello. Okay, cool. Um, that's a very interesting question because uh, we often grapple with that as well. And uh, one of the things we do is to ensure that whatever products that you're going to implement in any country has to pass the regulatory test. So obviously, it's a financial transaction, so it will have to tick the boxes. In South Africa, I think FICA is one of the, uh, is one of the tests that you do. So it is uh, something, but it's never foolproof, obviously, but it is something that uh, we need to really take into consideration when we put in the product specs together for this. So it is, uh, it is a challenge, and uh, we, we, we often ensure that uh, we've got all our boxes ticked you know, from our compliance perspective as well. Of the, uh, I th I th in terms of blockchain and Bitcoin, it is, it, it is in some ways almost more relevant that a lot of people love it, love the fact that the, the, the government can't take the money and the IRS and the SARS can't take the money, they can't be seen and it's completely anonymous, which is a big reason why regulatory bodies are pushing against and very, very wary of it. Uh, but there's some interesting challenges there because it's allegedly anonymous, but you can see a history of transaction of where the Bitcoins are flown from. So it can potentially, if there's any leak of your identity at some point along the way, they can end up kind of finding out who you are. So one solution is that I will take my bitcoins and uh, 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 Cecilia will take her bitcoins and we'll give them to Louis. And he'll jumble them all up and give us different bitcoins back so it's, you can't trace them. He's basically laundering money, if you like, not, not this Louis, of course. Um, and suddenly, from having trust without trust, I've got a lot of trust that this dude is going to give me my bitcoins back. One last question. I think there was another question up here. And uh, sorry, that'll be it. Hi, I've, um, I've got a question on Ethereum. How... Can you give an example of how a contract would work and what sort of conditions it can be based on? Can it, does it have vision outside the blockchain itself? Yeah. So uh, it, it is another, it is potentially a real downfall. So that, uh, an Ether contract in many ways lives in a virtual space on its own and it can access to itself and it's internally consistent and can access the, the Ether that's embedded in the contract. Um, if you now, and, and it needs to be objective and always verifiable. So if you then needed to base it on uh, what C the CNN story was on a website, you could in theory give it a URL, but there's no guarantee that every node that accesses that web page is going to get the same information. So it's a major challenge actually in dealing with outside market forces, which introduces the ideas of an oracle, which is a separate uh, entity outside the chain that you agree to trust or rely on, and it's one issue. But again, you've now kind of broken that um, absolute no trust, no faith, um, so there are plenty of, of hassles to, to, to work through. Um, thanks, everyone. Please give our speakers a round of applause again to say thank you. Um, I think it's now a, it's now a coffee break. 
Um, I'm sure they'll be around for a couple more questions if you have anything burning. Otherwise, go enjoy your coffee.